Hi, I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to another episode of EconoPolitics. Today's guest is Gabriel Ondetti, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Master of Global Studies program at Missouri State University in Springfield. Gabriel is this year's winner of LASA's Economics and Politics section's Best Book Prize for his book, Property Threats and the Politics of Anti-Statism, The Historical Roots of Contemporary Tax Systems in Latin America by Cambridge University Press, 2021. Welcome, Gabriel. Nice to see you again, and congratulations on an important book. Thank you very much, Joseph. It's great, it's great to be here. I, I, I really appreciate the invitation. Great. Let's begin by asking how you came to decide to write a book on comparative tax systems. Walk us through the intellectual journey that led you to this topic. Okay, well, I, uh, I started my career in uh, studying uh, land reform and uh, the movements for land reform in different countries, but particularly Brazil. Uh, and over time, I, I started to get a little bit, um, I guess, tired of that because uh, it seemed to me that land reform was kind of fading as an issue in Latin America and the kind of changes, uh, particularly in Brazil, that seemed to be in the offing in the second half of the 1990s when the uh, land reform movement was very powerful and, and, and or it seemed to be very powerful and government was making significant changes, at least relative to the past. Well, that all lost some steam and I felt, well, I, I, I need to move on to other topics that I feel are, are, are having, uh, are, are more germane to contemporary politics. Uh, and of course, uh, issues of, of resources, of, of what resources government has to implement policies, particularly fiscal resources, uh, were you know, of central importance, and yet they were fairly understudied in Latin America. Uh, and so I felt like I was moving away from land reform and moving away from property issues and going towards fiscal issues. Uh, but uh, oddly enough, uh, the two ended up converging uh, pretty strongly because as, I'll, as we can talk about later in the interview, uh, I found that, that uh, property reforms, okay, uh, attempts at property redistribution uh, are absolutely central to the fiscal and tax trajectory uh, of the countries that I ended up studying. So, so it was kind of a circuitous journey, but, uh, but uh, as it turns out, my second research topic uh, ended up being intimately related to my first research topic in ways that I, I totally did not expect. It's funny how that happens. For the benefit of our listeners, try to summarize in your own words, let's say the two or three main arguments of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the main argument is, is actually rather simple. Uh, and that is that the countries uh, that uh, implemented the most, you know, the most profound redistributive reforms, and particularly reforms uh, to property holding, to private property, are actually the ones that today have the lightest tax burdens, somewhat ironically, because it was in those countries that the state uh, sought to do the most or more 
to redistribute society's resources, and yet today they have the widest tax burden. Uh, and the reason behind that is that those efforts to redistribute property through things like land reform, through nationalization of industries, uh, nationalization of banks, and other such policies that affected the structure of property, okay, those reforms uh, ended up mobilizing very intense oppositions uh, from business uh, and from social conservatives and other groups uh, that ended up giving rise to very strong coalitions uh, of groups that were contrary to the expansion of any kind of state intervention. Okay, uh, So in essence, what happened is that uh, the backlashes against those attempts to restructure property rights uh, were so strong that they, that they ended up uh, uh, generating enduring anti-status coalitions, that is political coalitions that are, uh, are uh, uh, against the expansion of the public sector and the expansion of state intervention in the economy in, in a whole series of ways. Uh, and so in those countries, on the other hand, uh, where no such major redistribution of property occurred or no such major attempt to redistribute property occurred, those countries actually have heavier tax burdens today because there did not arise in those countries a powerful anti-status coalition joining together a series of different actors uh, that cooperated to kind of slow the growth of the state. Uh, in, instead, uh, in, those, uh, in those places, um, business tended to be less organized and less anti-status, that is less geared towards uh, uh, slowing the growth of the state. Uh, you did not have as strong right parties, that is programmatic parties with a right-wing anti-status agenda. And you also don't have an intellectual community in, ter in terms of think tanks, in terms of universities that projects and embodies and seeks to propagate a strong kind of economically liberal agenda. Uh, and so essentially the argument is that, as, as kind of the title of the book suggests, that property threats, major attempts to redistribute property, engender you know, lasting anti-statism that is embedded in certain political uh, and social organizations okay, uh, that end up making it very difficult to expand the public sector through taxation. Uh, and so again, ironically, those places, those countries in which the most ambitious attempts were made to restructure the polity uh, and, and society in the direction of greater equality are precisely the ones that today have the lightest tax burdens. Yeah, interesting. Um, in your book, you present four major case studies, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, and Chile. Mm -hmm. What is the unique feature of each one of these tax regimes? And I wonder if um, you can actually position them along a spectrum from, uh, from a more severe case of uh, anti-statism to, to mm -hmm. less so, I don't know. But go ahead and, uh, and look at these four cases and, and uh, give us a snapshot of what each one, what is particular to each, each situation. Right, right. Yeah, I, I don't know about a spectrum, but certainly they fall into two groups. Okay, they fall clearly into two groups and that is kind of central to my argument in the book. Uh, there is one group 
uh, consisting of Mexico and Chile, okay, uh, in which very uh, major episodes of state-driven property redistribution uh, occurred under leftist government, okay, in Chile, that was mainly under, uh, to some extent, uh, under Eduardo Frey in the late 60s, but much more decisively under uh, Salvador Allende in the early 1970s. Okay? And in Mexico, it was far, considerably farther back. The, the major episodes, there, there were a number of episodes uh, to some extent after the revolution, but most, m most importantly, the years of Lázaro Cárdenas, uh, from 1934 to 1940, when he was president, uh, when Mexico underwent the first major land reform in Latin America, uh, and also expropriated uh, a, a series of, of uh, non-farm businesses, but most notably the oil industry that was dominated by the United States and Britain, uh, and also did some other things, uh, expropriated in some other areas, mobilized labor, uh, mobilized the peasantry to struggle for land reform, and in general really shook things up and, and threatened property rights in, in a very substantial way. Uh, and so those are the two countries where you do have uh, major threats to properties that arise. And as a result, what you have is what I described earlier, is that there's a major backlash against that, a conservative backlash against that. And, and even though those offending governments are rolled, their policies are largely rolled back, the you know, Cardenas and Allende, uh, and especially in terms of Allende, it's totally rolled back. Uh, even then, the opposition forces that had led the struggle against state intervention remain highly mobilized and, and organized in the kind of a path-dependent process. So in, in, in both in Mexico and Chile, you have this tremendous residue okay, of the struggle against these redistributive episodes, these episodes of property rights redistribution in particular, that last for many decades, I mean, they continue today, really, uh, and in both of those countries, what you have are strong, what I call anti-statist political blocks made up of, of, of encompassing business associations that also uh, you know, embrace a relatively anti-statist ideology, uh, right of center programmatic parties that are quite strong, uh, and, uh, and, and also you know, an intellectual community that uh, embraces to a large extent kind of economically liberal perspectives. Uh, I mean, there are some differences between those two countries and there, I mean, the timing, of course, of the anti-status, you know, uh, uh, backlash is different because the reform years were different. Um, you know, there's some other differences, uh, for example, uh, 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 conservative think tanks in Chile are very strong. They're not so strong in Mexico, but on the other hand, in Mexico, you have some, some very prestigious private universities that are, are highly market-oriented and were established during the 1940s as a counterbalance against Cardenismo, which is, uh, was very strong in the state universities. Uh, you know, so for example, the, the Tec de Monterrey, which is one of the most prestigious universities in, in Latin America, was established in the 40s by business in order to counterbalance the leftism uh, of the state universities that had been established to a large extent under 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 
Cardenas. And so Mexico and Chile are the two big examples of, of countries in which there was a major property reform that, that caused a long-term residue in terms of this very well-structured and strong anti-status political bloc that has worked systematically to keep the, the expansion of the state in check, okay? Both by lobbying against policies that, that would increase it and also by weakening actors that might, you know, champion the expansion of the state, especially labor. So in both those countries, labor tends to be weak because businesses really pushed hard for, for it to, to stay weak. Um, on the other hand, uh, Argentina and Brazil in different ways, but, but both of them are countries where you never really had a major threat to property rights, okay? That's clearest in Brazil where there's really, you know, even, you know, uh, Getulio uh, Vargas is probably the most important reformer of that country, social reformer. He didn't really touch property rights. Uh, João Goulart in the 1960s tried to, but he really didn't make any progress. And right. Basically, it was pretty, I mean, he was, as soon as he tried to, to bring that up, he was thrown out of power. So, uh, so there really wasn't a major threat to property rights in Brazil. And largely the same thing, although the dynamics are a little bit different happening in Argentina. Peron, Juan Peron in the 40s and the 50s was a major, major social reformer, but, but, but Peron wasn't concerned with property issues. He did not uh, uh, undertake a major land reform. He really didn't engage in many major expropriations. Uh, and so he made large changes to Argentina, but he left property rights basically intact. And so Peron, and Peron was also like Vargas in many ways, pretty pro-business in, in the developmental uh, uh, ISI uh, uh, framework. And so, so he wasn't, you know, there wasn't the specter of socialism that you had in Chile or Mexico. Uh, and so what happens in both Argentina and Brazil is you do not see the appearance of these anti-status blocks that you see in, in Chile and Mexico of a cohesive business community, of strong right-wing parties, uh, of, of a, a strong uh, intellectual community favoring ne neoliberal economic policies uh, and things like that. So it really breaks down into, into two different groups, okay? Chile and, Arge Chile and Mexico, they do have the property uh, uh, rights threats and they become low tax countries because of the backlash against those. In Argentina and Brazil, you don't have the property threats, you don't have the backlash, you don't have the strong anti-status blocks, and as a result, over time, those states, those public sectors grow quite large. And today, they're pretty much the largest public sectors in Latin America, uh, other than you know, uh, socialist Cuba. Right? And then, and then very briefly, let me say something. I also extend those arguments to two other countries that are less developed. Guatemala, which is similar to the Chilean and Mexican case, and Ecuador, which is in some ways similar to the Argentine and Brazilian cases. You know, I think it would be interesting to pick up on, uh, on what you've just done with this book and uh, just now explaining the historic development um, through these four case studies. I wonder if that, that history um, lends itself 
with um, looking at the role or the closeness um, with multilateral um, organizations, uh, neoliberal uh, development uh, funding agencies, whether or not that recent history of these four countries um, prompts one or several of these countries to do more or to somehow be a favorite of, let's say, IMF, Inter-American Development Bank, World Bank. I don't know if there's a correlation there, but uh, yeah. listening to you, I thought that that would be an interesting uh, avenue to, um, to look into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so for example, um, during the ISI period, uh, you know, Brazil was often cited by, you know, ECLAC and uh, CEPAL and, and, and uh, you know, is, or, or, or let's say CEPAL was influential in Brazil, okay? Uh, and it was influential uh, in Mexico and it was influential in Chile also before the 1973 coup. So, so the more developmentalist organizations, and of course CEPAL was by far the most important during this era, uh, were closer to the more uh, you know, developmentalist models. Uh, you know, I mean, CEPAL was somewhat influential in Mexico, but Mexico didn't, you know, they weren't really pushing you know, the state didn't have as, as protagonistic a role as it did, you know, in, in some of these uh, other places. And so, and so, yeah, you do see where, where this, the, the more statist paths arise, you, you probably do see a, close, a closer relationship to, to ECLAC. But, and then later uh, in, in the neoliberal period, of course, you know, Chile becomes the darling of, of those organizations that form the Washington Consensus and are you know, pushing forward uh, policies of, uh, uh, of, of uh, you know, structural adjustment, uh, liberalization of trade and things like that. Uh, whereas, and, and, and that's and probably true also of Mexico during the 80s, you know, under Salinas and De La Madrid and, uh, uh, and, and the other presidents of that neoliberal destruction period. Whereas, you know, Brazil is not really towing the line as, as much, you know, Brazil was, I don't know if it was the bet noir, but it was, you know, a country that didn't quite follow orthodoxy the way it was supposed to, right? Uh, and then Argentina, of course, you know, for, for a time under Menem, uh, Argentina seemed to be, you know, kind of emerging from, uh, from the Peronist legacy and, and doing all the things that IMF wanted, but, uh, they never were able to do it enough okay, to change the model. And so it was, you know, it all came crashing down uh, at the beginning of the 2000s. So Argentina, with, after a, a kind of brief flirtation with, with being a, a kind of a poster child of the IMF, uh, you know, in the recent decades has been anything but that for the most part. And so, so you argue that the um, strongest anti-statist peak associations are to be found in Mexico and Chile. Mm -hmm. At first glance, I thought you would find very strong peak associations in all four countries. Um, mm -hmm. um, but, but I guess um, you, you looked into it closer and um, the characteristic of being anti-statist, um, I, I guess strong peak associations also, if you look at other characteristics, but uh, to be so so active, I think the main ones, as you say, are in Mexico and, and, and Chile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, th there's no question. I mean, uh, 
and Mexico and Chile have very strong encompassing peak associations that uh, that uh, that are uh, uh, you know bring together uh, business associations from the entire economy really. Uh, you know, in in, uh, in in Chile, the CPC, and in Mexico, the the CE, the, uh, the CCE, but also a number of others, uh, Coparmex, and uh, and the uh, uh, the the uh, CMN, which is the the Council of Mex Business Council of Mexico, I think it's called now. It's changed names a couple of times, but in in both Mexico and Chile business is quite centralized politically. They have a lot of coordination across sectors. The opposite example of that is Brazil, okay? Brazil, there's nothing beyond the sectoral level. You know, they have, you know, there's organizations for commerce, there's organizations for, there's an organization for industry, uh, there's an organization for agriculture, uh, but even those organizations are not very strong. They're corporatist organizations sponsored by the state, but they really don't have all that much support from business. Uh, and, uh, and actually the organization, which is often cited as the most powerful business organization in Brazil is Fiesp, which is the Federation of the Industrialists of the State of Sao Paulo. And, and while Fiesp is very important, it represents only one sector in one state, right? Whereas the peak associations in Mexico right. represent every sector, right. right, in every state, right, yeah. and so you know, you, you, of course, those those associations, those business associations, do sometimes have internal rivalries and divisions, and sometimes one sector gets angry and you know pulls its support and stuff. But they, for the most part, hung together pretty well, right. uh, and so. It's it's remarkably different, uh, Mexico and, and Chile versus Brazil. Argentina is kind of a middle ground. Argentina has some significant sectoral organizations, but like Brazil, they do not have an encompassing peak business organization that has the kind of clout that the Mexican and Chilean ones do. You know, they can really speak for the private sector as a whole. I mean, they, they just don't, you know, Argentina doesn't have that. Brazil doesn't have that. Those are good points. Mm -hmm. An essential part of the book draws on conversations with many important political and economic actors. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you learn regarding elite interviewing and field research in general. Mm -hmm. um, what was the experience like? Um, and uh, what, what can you share with us in terms of um, experience that you picked up uh, during this um, this research, yeah. So uh, you know, for this project, I uh, I conducted uh, elite interviews in four countries and in all four of the main case study countries. Uh, and of course, I've done interviews like that for other projects too. So I've I've done a lot of interviews over the last few decades. But uh, you know, I, I I think some of the points that I would bring up are, um, and we had been talking about this earlier, but. Uh, it, it, the the big fish are not necessarily the most useful ones, uh, and it, and I know it's nice to have you know a president or a minister you know or you know other top top officials uh, in your list of interviews, uh, but oftentimes they're not the best interviews. Uh, why? Because sometimes they have a lot at stake. Uh, you know they have a big in their big names they have a reputation uh, to tar they could potentially be tarnished. Uh, they tend to be, you know, if you reach a high level, uh, even in a business organization and, and much less a political party, 
Um, you're, poli you're probably a, a very skilled politician and skilled politicians, uh, they stick to their talking points. Uh, they don't tell you, you know, they, 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 they're often not frank. Uh, they try to lead you the way they want that it makes sense for them, for their interests. Uh, and, uh, and they don't have much time, you know, because they're, they're in demand. And so those people, uh, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't go after them. If, if, if you're doing this kind of work, you should. Uh, but don't get obsessed with them because a lot of people at lower levels can be much more useful in terms of, uh, of information. Uh, you can easily, more easily get to them. Uh, and, uh, and so in my case, for example, I found that some people who are really useful are tax lawyers and tax consultants. Okay. Some of those people are actually, a lot of those people are actually former functionaries of the tax authority and some of the high functionaries uh, and even some of them are you know former elected officials uh, and, and actually a number of them in, 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 in some places and so those people could be really really useful they're well connected they're really knowledgeable they have the technical part but they also have the political part and they have contacts okay and you can exploit their contacts uh, sometimes uh, and so yeah I mean one message would be don't don't get so focused on the big fish that you that you ignore the opportunities for really useful interviews you know in the level below that and and the other another thing along those lines is that sometimes the little fish can help you get to the big fish right i mean if they have you know open up their you know quote unquote rolodex uh and and they can give you personal emails personal cell phone numbers they might make a call on your behalf you know, uh, anything to get around the secretary. I mean, the secretary for an important person is there to limit access, right? So if you, you can find a way to, 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 to either get an in with the secretary by playing somebody's name or go around the secretary, you know, then, then that's, a, that's an advantage. So, so yeah, and, you know, so it's, it's about building networks to some extent, you know, and, and, and sometimes it's better to pick the low hanging fruit uh, because that lets you, you know, go work your way up the tree gradually, so to speak. Uh, so I, I would say that um, those two things I think are are important. Um, and uh, and one other thing that I would say that that uh, I, I didn't always practice this, but I will preach it. But uh, do your homework, and and not just on your topic broadly, but on the person, the specific person that you're going to interview. Who, who is that person? Where, where have they been? You know, have they been in some, uh, you know, delicate positions, made controversial decisions? Uh, are they known for this or for that? Uh, do they have, you know, scandals in their past that may have shaped the way they, where they, you know, currently are? Uh, and about their organizations as well. And I say that because that can help you understand why they're telling you what they're telling you. Okay, and, and if there's certain themes that they're beating on insistently that you don't really understand why, well, if you know where they're coming from, that can shed some light on it. And also, I mean, people like when you know about them, you know, people, it's, it's you know, of course, very high up people, they expect you to know about them, right? But, but some people are a little bit lower, but who are still useful, you know, they, they I think they respect the fact uh, that you uh, you went out of your way to to find out about their resume, you know, yeah. uh, and where they've been, and they might not 
you know, if you bring up something scandalous, they might not appreciate that. But but if if you you know kind of know where they're coming from, uh, and you know, and if you know, you know, if you can say, well, hey, you know, I know you worked with so and so who I just interviewed last week, and you know, he had this interesting thing to say. I mean, those connections can can you know can can get them to speak more. I, I always end by asking them who else they think I should talk to. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sometimes facilitates the access to that person and uh, shows them that, um, you know, you, you're putting this puzzle together and, and are serious about it. Um, you obviously also consulted many different sources of data. And I wonder if you can comment briefly on the accessibility, the reliability of these sources, um, and especially the interaction with the staff at these institutions, how open they are to foreign researchers and, and how did you uh, parlay that to, to get access? Yeah, so I, I, have, I, I have very uh, good memories of my interviews. I have very bad memories of data source. <laughs> Data for especially for someone who's looking at data over a very long period of time, and you know the data sets that I compiled uh, for this project date from the beginning of the 20th century all the way to I think 2017 was the cutoff date. I mean, that's hard because you don't have good data going back that far. I mean, you got you have good data on taxation going back basically to 1990 at the at the at the at the multilateral level, where you have you know well compiled data sets across countries, you know uh, especially from CEPAL or ICLAC, you know CEPAL does a good job from 1990 on, and then uh, uh, for taxation, uh, and then OECD has a project that they put together with the help of CEPAL and I think uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, and they also have some very useful tax and revenue general revenue data uh, for the period from 1990 forward. Uh, even all that's not perfect. Sometimes they don't have subnational revenues. There are some issues sometimes with, um, with social security and things like that. But, uh, but from 1990 forward, you have nice, pretty comparable data, especially from ECLAC and to some extent OECD. Uh, and so that's good. I mean, and if you're studying spending, you don't even have that. You know, Senate spending is, is even worse than taxation. Okay, but for taxation, uh, if you move back before 1990, things get really hairy. Uh, it's, uh, I was lucky that I got a data set, which is not complete, but uh, I got a data set from a, from a, a, a veteran Paul economist for the 80s. Uh, and that has been very useful. It was all the countries that I needed. But before that, I had to rely on national sources. Uh, and national sources are not necessarily totally comparable with, uh, with other national sources. Uh, people use different criteria in gathering the data in different countries. Uh, you usually can't find that long, beautiful data set that you, you know is your data series that you want that goes all the way back to where you want it. You usually can't. And, and basically, with every country, there are gaps for things like subnational revenues and Social Security, which I needed, right? And so it was difficult. And, uh, and my data sets, I, I, I would stand by them. I think they're very representative of the trajectory of taxation in those countries. Uh, but they're not perfect. And there was a lot of kind of splicing together of series. 
that I had to do. And, uh, and, and, you know, I just, to some, some extent, it's just kind of educated guesses of how you fit these series together, right? And, uh, and I would say that, uh, you know, from a practical perspective, uh, if you're doing this kind of work with tax data and, I, and you know, and spending data too, I would assume, uh, the, it's not a bad idea if you can't figure something out is to actually contact uh, the organizations that put those data sets together. Because I, I, you know, in my experience, people are really helpful. Uh, I had, for example, with CEPAL, which is based in Santiago, uh, I have had numerous exchanges with their people. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a guy named Michael Hani who works there, uh, who, you know, I've emailed and spoke to him over the phone, you know, from Santiago, and, and uh, he's been really helpful. And, and that's, and, you know, not just Michael, but uh, a number of people, uh, especially from CEPAL, but, but sometimes also from certain Latin American universities. Um, I even had someone from Uruguay uh, years ago, this is, I didn't do your, this, this project, I didn't include Uruguay in this project, but for an earlier paper on taxation, who actually put together a data set for me. I mean, it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, I mean, I think he might've done it anyway, but you know, this is a stimulus. So every time, I think every time that I've asked a Latin American researcher, policymaker about data, they've been extraordinarily helpful. Okay. Whatever they could do, they did. You know, sometimes there wasn't much they could do, but they, they did. They sent me data sets. They, they made up data sets. They explained things. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, reach out to the sources. Uh, you see if they can help you. Uh, you're never, if you're doing historical tax research, you're never going to have a perfect data set. It just doesn't, I mean, I can't correct things that were done wrong 100 years ago. Right. It's just I just can't do it. Right. But I can kind of, you know, do some sleuthing and try to figure out what the data I have uh, represents, you know, and, and how I can potentially fit together, you know, linked series and, and what what, you know, by by a little bit of triangulation to try to figure out, well, if I have different data sets and they're somewhat different, you know, which is the one that that seems most reasonable you know, given the other information I have about this country. So, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that my data is good, but it's not perfect because it, it, I had to, you know, I had to make a lot of accommodations and compromises to, to put it all together. We're quickly reaching the end, but I wanted to ask you that having looked at the history and development of um, current tax systems throughout the region, have you gained any particular insight into the issue of inequality in the region? Um, mm -hmm. Inequality is something that that is very much in vogue. Almost every single um, episode of econopolitics, people bring up the yeah. concept yeah. Of, of inequality. And so you've just gone through this exercise looking at um, this tug of war, anti-statist um, movements. Um, how, how, has that sort of given you a greater um, insight into the historic or the current situation mm -hmm. of uh, of inequality? Well, you know that's that's not you know that's not the center of my book. But uh, at the end, uh, in the last chapter, 
you know, since since the argument seems to have important implications for inequality, I, I, I devote to you know part of the last chapter saying, okay, well, what is what does this tell us about what the best path would be to reduce inequality? Uh, and uh, and I'm not, you know, that 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 exercise is not really a very technical one. Uh, and, and basically it's the question of, you know, I focus on the question of property rights reform versus fiscal, you know, gradual fiscal reform through taxing and spending. Uh, and I know, you know, among people on the political left, there, there has long been a sense that, that you know, it's, it's not enough just tact and spend. You really have to restructure property relations because they're such a fundamental aspect of inequality in Latin America. You know, distribution of land, distribution of productive resources of different, you know, types. Uh, and so, but but my art, you know, one of the major implications of my argument, I think, is that that the 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 pursuit of major property reform can 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 create major problems and that that that, that and, and major and long-lasting problems because if you try to seize the property of the elite um, that can poison the relationship between the elite and the state to such an extent that it becomes actually harder to achieve incremental gains down the road Right. If you if you make it so that 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 the economic elite uh, and 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 their allies are come together in kind of a, a blocking coalition, okay, that makes it a big uh, that makes every attempt to raise revenues a huge struggle, you know, and, and then it can it can make things even more difficult. Uh, and of course, the revolutionary path might work better because then if you can actually liquidate that elite like they did in in, in Cuba. Uh, you know, that, that potentially you relieve yourself of that problem because they can't come back and block your policies if you, you know, destroyed them and seized all their property. But the problem with that, I mean, there are multiple problems. One is ethical. I mean, the use of violence is complicated, right? But, uh, but the other thing is, is that the experience of Latin America has shown us that it almost never works. You know, it never, that, the revolutionary path almost never works. And the people who tend to suffer uh, from its failures are precisely the people who they were trying to help, right? And so the revolutionary path to, to property reform, I don't think, you know, I can't recommend it. In, in some cases, it may be ethically justifiable, but I, it just doesn't, the, the facts don't support it, right? And so, you know, based on kind of a process of elimination, I argue in the book that even though it's not very good that the best the best path or the least bad path to inequality is to keep trying to work on on taxation and spending, making the tax system more progressive. Tax systems in Latin America are either uh, you know regressive or, or or neutral for this for the most part, and making spending uh, more progressive. Right, and and in some countries you need to increase spending and taxation in addition to make them more progressive. So you know the main argument is that. Even though it's it's frustratingly slow, that the only real realistic way forward in terms of inequality is to keep working on taxation and spending, and little by little make it more you know redistributive. Yeah. 
In line with our tradition here at EconoPolitics, it's time to ask you to make one or two recommendations regarding uh, your travels, your experience in the region. So Gabriel, I wonder what you have for us in terms of a, a favorite spot or two in any of these countries you've been to. Right, so uh, I thought about this and there are <laughs> zillions that I can talk about, but. Uh, one place that I, people not, wouldn't necessarily discover on their own, but, but which my family and I have, have enjoyed quite a bit, is uh, in, in, the, in the city of Belém do Pará, which you're probably familiar with in the Amazon region of Brazil. Uh, very pleasant city, uh, which actually I think is much better than Manaus, which is the Amazon city that people yes, usually yes. go to. It's, it, it, it's, 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 more, it's Belém is much more pleasant. Uh, but Belang is this old um, rubber sit from the rubber boom era, and it has this kind of decadent grandeur of that era, right? And uh, and it's kind of a port town that's very charming, uh, and 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 that it's it has much. It's not quite as is 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 intolerably hot as Manaus. Uh, and there's two things that I want to point out in Belang. Right? Uh, one is that there's an unbelievably good um, ice cream store, chain of ice cream stores called Kaidu. Right? And Kaidu makes ice creams from a, a, an incredible range of fruits that are native to the Amazon. And some of them are, are you know, not great, but some of them are amazing. And you can, there's, there's a zillion different flavors you can try. So Kairu is, I totally would Fantastic. recommend that for anyone. It was written up in the New York Times years ago, but, uh, but I, most people I know who travel in Latin America don't know about it. But uh, the other thing in Belang, which I would also recommend, uh, is uh, is there's a, a, a religious festival in September and October, if I'm not mistaken, called the Sirio Ginazare. The Sirio Ginazare is a huge festival and it culminates in October uh, with this enormous procession that's, that's incredibly impressive where they take the, the, the statue of the Virgin, of the Virgin from the main cathedral and parade her around the city. Uh, for hours, and actually, they parade her in these boats too in the river, and uh, and it's just spectacular. And even if you're not Catholic, uh, it's 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 a really it's a cultural phenomenon worth seeing. Uh, and so I would recommend Belen. I for different reasons, research and personal, I've been there several times over the years, and and uh, and I would recommend it to anyone who wants to kind of explore uh, a place that that most tourists don't get to. The ice cream sounds fantastic. Thanks it is, it is, believe me. Anyhow, thank you, Gabriel. Um, wonderful to have you. Congratulations once again on thank the you. Best Book Prize. Keep up the good work, and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks, thanks a lot, Joe. I appreciate this, and it, it was a great conversation. Great. Really enjoyed it. To our listeners, thank you all for tuning in and supporting EconoPolitics. Please spread the word and follow us on Twitter at EconoPolls or our section site at lazaweb.org. See you again next time. And in the meantime, stay well, stay safe.